I'm a fan of good stories. They inspire us, change us, scare us, make us laugh, make us cry, move us to action. Stories speak to us in a way that is deeper than the words being said. And the story of God is the ultimate example of this. It's a collection of little stories woven together beautifully to tell a much more significant story. And just like any great story, it comes complete with several aha moments along the way, moments where you find a missing puzzle piece and the whole thing begins to make sense. Today's story is one of those aha moments. Not necessarily in the moment, I I don't think the disciples knew the full extent of what was happening, but for us, as readers and listeners of the story, this is a fantastic moment. Because the rabbi is about to take several little stories from the past and the future and demonstrate how they all come together. The big story, the one that you and I find ourselves right in the middle of, is about to be explained, and it's all going to happen at the table. Welcome to Stories in Scripture, a podcast dedicated to telling the big story of the Bible one piece at a time. My name is Keith. And I'm Ryan. This one's about the most famous elements of the meal, the bread and the wine. Peter was struck by the strangeness of the whole evening. In all their years together, not one of them had experienced a meal, even a Passover like this one. The conversation has settled after the washing. It is calmer, subdued, but tense. Peter can feel that tension sink deep into the cushions and clothes of the men. It hangs on each word, each look, each movement. Suddenly, Rabbi sits up. One of you will betray me. He makes this stunning remark as he reaches for a bowl in the middle of the table. The blood in Peter's face evaporates. He blinks and wonders, fearful of the solution to this transparent riddle. Me. It has to be. In my foolishness, to prove my worth, I sat on his right. He thinks I want to usurp his position. Peter looks at his teacher without turning. The evening had started confidently enough for Peter, but each moment slowly eroded his ego. He has nothing but frayed anxiety from the mysterious words and actions of his rabbi. And now he speaks of betrayal. Does he know? Of course he knows. Is he shifting away from me? Should I even be here? He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The walls swell and bend with an anticipation of each man's anxiety. Each one thinks himself the betrayer. The room's temperature rises. The house strains under the pressure of speculation. Peter's gaze drifts up and down the table. Among the various earth-formed platters sit bowls. In the bowl is a broth, traditionally made to accompany the unleavened bread at Passover. This broth now reflects condemnation to Peter. He sees his face vaguely and obscurely in the nearest bowl. The men had been dipping their bread in these bowls all night. It could be any one of them that will betray their friend and leader. That must have been a haunting moment for everyone in the room. To understand the significance of what just happened and the way of what Jesus is about to do and say next, we need to understand some context. So let's back up 1,500 years. It's been 430 years since Joseph moved his family out of Egypt to keep them alive during the famine. At this time, Egypt is a thriving civilization with massive structures being built everywhere you look. And how do you build such massive structures? With bricks. 
That's where God's people came in. Unfortunately, they had become slaves. Their job? Make bricks. A whole bunch of them. Day after day, week after week, year after year, for hundreds of years. Meaning at first there was probably some fight in them. The early generations probably had some dreams of freedom and a better future for their kids, but brick by brick, generation by generation, slowly those dreams slipped away. And this is just how it works. Eventually you stop fighting and resolve to be content with slavery. Sure, you're a slave, but at least you have food to eat and shelter for your family. But here's an essential truth about God. His plan for his people is never slavery. His children are created to be free. So he sends a very unqualified man named Moses to set them free. Now, even if you're new to the Bible, you've probably heard the story. Moses demands that Pharaoh lets the Israelites go, but Pharaoh won't listen. So God causes 10 plagues to fall on Egypt, the final one being the angel of death, striking down the firstborn of every household. But the Israelites were instructed to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. Whenever the angel of death saw the blood, he passed over the house. Passover, get it? That was the last straw for Pharaoh. He let the Israelites leave. God's people were set free. Now, if you're a thinker, you may be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. So God killed a bunch of children just to let his people free? Wasn't there a better way to do that? Also, didn't Pharaoh then change his mind and try to hunt the people down again? And when you say God's people were set free, don't you mean they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, most of the time wishing they were back in Egypt? Yeah, all fantastic questions that we'll spend an entire season unpacking together in the future. But for now, here's what you need to know. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a celebration of this exodus where the blood of the Lamb set God's people free from slavery and they began the journey towards freedom. That is what Jesus and his disciples are sitting down to remember. Now back to the table. A solemn air moves the curtains. Conversation is dwindled to casual formalities. No one wishes to enter into the next step. That way violence waits. Each man contemplates what Rabbi has said and what it means for him. Rabbi moves the bowl from in front of him and grabs bread. What sparse utterings occurred now ceased. They all watch as Rabbi carefully prays a blessing of the bread. He then lovingly breaks it and begins to pass pieces to each man. Peter cannot describe the look as he receives his peace. The warmth covers his soul and body, a sheen of comfort and peace. But Peter is unsure what to do. Rabbi holds the bread up. This is my body. Peter looks down at the bread in his hands, then back at his teacher. The utter incomprehensibility of what he just said weighed on Peter. What does he mean, his body? The last time he talked about eating and bodies, he called me Satan. Should he say something? The group tended to look to Peter to make sense of Rabbi's words, so Peter felt that he should mark the occasion with something. But he was at a loss. He could not let the creeping imp of insecurity pervert this solemn moment. He kept his mouth closed except to place the bread on his tongue and chew. Bread was an essential part of the Passover meal. 
After the 10th plague, you can imagine the Israelites left Egypt in a hurry. Uh, they had to. There was no time to prepare bread that was leavened because that process takes a few days. So they grabbed unleavened bread and headed out. Unleavened bread then became a symbol of freedom from slavery. Leaven, or yeast, on the other hand, became a symbol of sin. When Jesus takes the unleavened bread and makes the declaration that it is his body, he is saying several things. But here are two important ones. One, in him there is no sin. He is the picture of freedom. He is our example of how to live. Two, he is about to be broken for the entire world. Years later, when writing a letter to a church in Corinth, Paul explained it this way. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is a really big deal. Jesus is the unleavened bread broken for us. When we take communion, we aren't just remembering an event 2,000 years ago. We are reminding ourselves that the forgiveness for our sins is happening and is real today, just as real as the bread we hold in our hands. That is a scandalous invitation, an invitation to practice uncommon freedom. So how do we practice it? By making room at the table for everyone leaving judgment behind and seeing the best in every single person. Because in reality, you and I don't deserve to be at the table either, but we are. So we work out the wickedness and judgment in our own hearts and make room for sincerity and truth. Rabbi takes the cup and raises it for everyone to see. This is my blood of the covenant. It has been spilt for you. Covenant. That word has weight. Rabbi was too intentional for a casual slip of that word on Passover. What did he mean? The old covenants, the ones of Abraham, Isaac, Moses, had troubled history with the chosen people of Yahweh. They were there tonight to celebrate one of the most significant of those covenants. The Israelites in Egypt had sacrificed painted their doors with blood. Blood. Peter had seen much of it in his life. Life in Israel alternated between blood, sacrifice, and feast, atonement, and sin, guilt, and celebration. He watched the cup being passed around the room. He could feel the mystery in the weight of the cup as it got to him. He could not penetrate it. He raised it to his lips and drank as deep as he dared. Three years before this dinner, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him and shouts out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Did you catch that? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? What does that mean? How does that work? This is the piece of the puzzle that brings so much of the story of God together. Jesus is about to freely give himself up as the true sacrifice, whose blood will pay the price for the sins of the world. 
Every year at Passover, the Jews would sacrifice a lamb to remember how the blood of the lamb saved their forefathers from death, setting them free from slavery and beginning their exodus towards becoming free men and women. Jesus is making an astonishing statement here that his blood is now going to be the ultimate sacrifice that initiates the new exodus, where the entire world has the ability if they choose to get out of the slavery of sin and begin a journey towards freedom. His death on the cross is the start of something new, a brand new covenant where God's people will leave the slavery and bondage of sin and head out on a journey learning what it means to be free. If that sounds barbaric to you today, that's fair, but it's important to remember the context this is taking place. God loves communicating to the world in a way that will make sense to them. Covenants and sacrifices were the way the world worked. That is the language they understood. So Jesus passed the cup around in remembrance of the blood he was about to shed to show his friends in a way they could comprehend that their sins are forgiven. Peter is looking at his rabbi. He feels such grace and love for the man, yet he also feels strange frustration and deep confusion. Peter and rabbi have not always been able to see the world in the same way. Who among the twelve had? But something within Peter seemed to always say both the wrong and the right thing. He was equally praised as criticized for his brashness and quickness. Rabbi never made him feel excluded. He seemed to go out of his way to make sure Peter and the others, and really anyone he met, knew they were welcome. But welcome to what? Him. His being, his person, his life, his soul. Him. Rabbi was open, and that openness drew people to him, and it's what condemned him. Rabbi is looking at each of the twelve men in turn. His gaze meets their eyes. Most can't hold the look very long and turn quickly to their food or the man next to him. Each time, the rabbi seems unfazed by the discomfort. Finally, his eyes meet Peter's. Their look lingers a beat longer than the others. The whole of eternity collapses, stars, cities, God himself into that moment. Rabbi is speaking to the group and yet somehow directly at Peter. Do this. Peter catches a subtle movement in rabbi's look. A quick back and forth that indicates the whole room, the length of the tables. As often as you can. The implication sinks into Peter. This is an invitation. To what? The Peter and the rest have no idea. But Peter got the sense that it was not a new invitation. Whatever Rabbi was inviting him to, he had already met them there before. In remembrance of me. The table. This has something to do with the table. The community at this table. He's inviting me, us, to the table again and again. He chose bread and wine with precision. We eat bread, we drink wine. He knows we will be at the table frequently. And every time we do, we must remember him. Peter doesn't know just how badly he needed to hear that. He doesn't understand the full implications of the table yet. I don't think any of us do. We're all learning it a little more every day. That's the beauty of the meal. 
N.T. Wright said it this way, quote, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to the disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. He gave them a practice, one they could do over and over again. So here's a final thought on what just happened. Jesus is inviting you and I to participate in the breaking. We all have a part to play in the body as well. So the call is to figure out your role and play it to the best of your ability. Is your role to help food get to the hungry or bring clean water to villages who don't have it? Do it. Is your role to create videos that advocate for the voiceless? Do it. Is your role to provide a loving family for kids who don't have one? Do it. Is your role to raise your own kids in a loving household? Do it. Is your role to fix roads so we have a safe way to get from A to B or sell produce or cut hair or cure cancer? Do it. For the sake of the body, do it. Break yourself for the good of the body. That is a deeply gospel principle. And if nothing else, maybe that puts a little perspective on your work day tomorrow. Or maybe it's a push to start volunteering at that place you know you're supposed to help or take that job or raise money for that thing or whatever. On and on we could go. You get the picture. You have a place at the table. The body was broken for you. The blood was spilt for you. Now you get to participate in this grand story of reconciliation. You've got a part to play, so play it well. The cup reaches Judas. As the man takes the cup, Peter fixes his gaze intently on Judas. Something in his eyes. It is as if he is being ripped in two. He lingers taking the cup from Matthew. Matthew doesn't take his hand from the cup until he's sure Judas has it. Judas's hands shakes as he holds the cup in front of him. The rest of them wait impatiently for him to drink. Judas waits too long before his trembling hand raises the cup to his lips. The wine in tiny waves crashes over the lip of the cup and down onto Judas's hands, now red with wine. With deep embarrassment, Judas quickly sips and passes it on, refusing to look at anyone. His night's about to take a left turn. Next time on Stories in Scripture. Thanks for listening to this episode of Stories in Scripture. You can learn more about this project at storiesinscripture.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter at SIS Project.